Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you interesting guests who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording this podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respects to all First Nations people. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Emeritus Professor Andrew Marcus. Professor Marcus is the Pratt Foundation Chair of Jewish Civilization and the Director of the Australian Centre for Jewish Civilization at the School of Philosophical, Historical and International Studies at Monash University. Under Professor Marcus's expert leadership, the centre provides exemplary teaching, research and community outreach with a clear and focused plan for growth in the future. Professor Marcus is a leader in the area of social cohesion and inclusion and has uh, focused his work on areas of national significance, such as the Scanlon Foundation Mapping Social Cohesion Research Program, the Jewish Population Study, Gen 17, and the history of Yiddish Melbourne and the Melbourne Jewish community. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. We're delighted to have you here and uh, and really thrilled to have you as our guest to talk about what social cohesion is because you've been studying it at certainly for the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute since 2007. So, uh, But of course your history and, and knowledge about social cohesion goes well before that. Yep. So we are absolutely delighted to talk about um, what your interpretation is of the sort of studies and research that's been going on around social cohesion and how others outside might actually be able to think about it in a, a way that's really accessible and um, and unpicks some of the things that are found in the Mapping Social Cohesion reports as well. So um, I wonder where you think we should be starting in this conversation. One way of thinking about social cohesion, which makes sense to me, is more at the other end, what happens when you don't have social cohesion? Mm -hmm. That's more evident than trying to determine comparing different modern societies today and say which is more cohesive and which is not. We can certainly see societies which are not. Mm -hmm. And what you ha these societies are characterised by, I guess, breakdown. Mm -hmm. And also by the way that the governments of these countries think that they have to act in order to keep people in line and to keep people... Um, obedient or moving in the direction that they want them to move. So that would be like an example of an authoritarian society. Whereas we live in a democratic society. How democratic is up for discussion <laughs> and we won't want to talk about that. But there is that very clear di difference between an authoritarian society. Like we're discussing today in the context of the ongoing war in the Ukraine. And people, I think, have become very much aware of um, Russia under Putin and the way that that is an authoritarian society, even though they may have, people may vote and so on. Right. But the way, for example, that the freedom of the press has been totally uh, placed under state control mm -hmm. and people who don't agree with that in the media have to leave or are at risk of going to jail. Mm. Um, and we go back to one of the founders of modern sociology, Emil Durkheim. And for him, it was a puzzle to try to understand 
what had happened, and these are relatively free societies, what happened in these societies is they transitioned from a feudal order where everyone had very similar values, there was very much limited um, roles in their lives, they may be born into a station in life, stay in that for the whole life. And what happened in the complex modern society when people didn't necessarily share values and they didn't have those levels of obedience, that the church, for example, had become much less significant. So to try to understand these complexities, what was it that bound people together? Now, obviously, we could talk about this at some length. (laughs) But one entree to Australia for me is to understand what happened in Australia after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Because what had characterised Australia up to that point, as the people like to think about it, was that it was a very unified society. Yes. And and when they said that, of course, um, they forgot about the First Nations peoples and they forgot about various other groups in society, but they liked to think of themselves as unified. One of the boasts was that Australia was 98% British. Um, And so there was a lot of concern when um, the post-war immigration program developed and the government realised that if they wanted to build up the population, which was then 7.5 million, they couldn't do it by just drawing on British United Kingdom sources. They had to go more widely. And so the, the problem there was how do you maintain the cohesion of these societies if you're introducing these elements from various different cultures. And some of the answers that they came up with was very strongly emphasised the need for assimilation. So these people were coming, but they had to come on the terms that were being um, established by the government. And that meant adopt values, learn English, send your children to state schools with other kids and so on. Um, become us. Yeah, become (laughs) like us, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then the challenge when they realised that assimilation wasn't working, the way that they had thought about it, it wasn't working. You know, they tried to assimilate the First Nations peoples um, and they were realising that that wasn't going to happen in the way that they had expected. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to assimilate these various European peoples and not even thinking about Asian immigration at that point. So that, I think, for me, highlights some of the complexities of cohesion as it operated in a relatively free society, such as Australia, as distinct from a totalitarian society. Like, I came from a totalitarian society to Australia. Um, I was brought up under Stalinist Russia in Hungary. Um, and people there kept in their places because the secret police would make sure that if, if you, you know, step out of line. Um, so it was like a, a terror system yeah. that maintained that. Not a voluntary one. <coughs> Not mm. a voluntary, no. So I don't know if you've got any sort of response to that, that sort <laughs> of introductory <laughs> comments. It's interesting because there is a lot of discourse around um, assimilation integration and would you say that at that point in time or even just through the process of migration to Australia there's been a preference or an expectation for um, migrants to I guess adopt um, what Australia has as well as maintain what they they are um, and were before coming here or do you feel as though there's this expectation to just leave what you were behind and completely 
assimilate into this country. So, so these are some of the complexities of, say, multiculturalism, mm. because just as we could discuss what does social cohesion mean, what does multiculturalism mean? Um, and it can have a range of different meanings. So what we need to understand is what is its meaning in Australia? Because some societies, some European societies, by multiculturalism, they understand that to mean um, a range of different groups living side by side but with very different values. So that reflects the structure of society. Um, and there's less of an attempt to integrate and more an acceptance of that divergence that that's characterises some European countries. So when there's been a lot of discussion over the last couple of decades that multiculturalism is a failed um, project, I think they're particularly thinking about that European model where um, cultures, people were like segregated in a, in a substantial way, mm-hmm. both in where they lived, in their occupations and in their values. Whereas I think the Australian understanding of multiculturalism is that it's a integration. It's a two-way process. So notionally, the host society moves towards the immigrant and the immigrant moves towards the host society. I think that's not an equal movement. Right. It's much more movement on the one side. But there are aspects of multiculturalism that people will accept. You know, it's interesting to think about points in time when there's been a lot of tension in Australia over the pace and the pattern of integration. Um, I think one point of tension was in the immediate post-war years when the country was embarking on a more diversified policy and was it working or not working? And one of the responses of the government was to try to put a lot of emphasis on British migration. Mm -hmm. So there was this bring out a Britain scheme (laughs) um, and heavy subsidies for people coming from the United Kingdom. Another point of tension was in the mid-1980s when uh, there was mounting concern over the pace of immigration from Asia. And you understand these tensions are at a point when there's been this shift, a shift from predominantly British migration to European migration. That was a point of tension. And people seem to have got over that. And now we have Ligon Street, etc. Yeah. And similarly, that problem about Asian immigration, which became more significant in this country in the late 70s and then in the 80s. And so there were critics who were, uh, let's leave them unnamed for the present, but were very concerned about the way that uh, the country was changing because of these immigrant streams. And similarly, there were similar concerns about First Nations peoples and land rights. And if we go back and see that in, in, in try and date that, it's quite similar, 1983, 84, 85. Um, and just as people were saying, we've got to cut back on European immigration, we've got to cut back on Asian immigration, um, multiculturalism may not be working, we're turning us into a nation of tribes. So some of these periods of tension and discourse. It's quite interesting, isn't it, to think about how we as a society actually accommodate that and move from one side of that conflict to the other side of the conflict. I was curious though, Andrew, about um, the different um, groups that have uh, migrated to Australia. The the um, experience of the Greeks and Italians was quite different to what it is for migrants today in that they 
they didn't have the same connectivity to home the home country. And I have heard um, migrants from that particular generation who who talk about how they 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 were quite comfortable with the idea that they actually had to assimilate because that was part of making sure that it was successful in this huge move that they'd made and that complete separation from a home country. Is, have you noticed that in your research, that there is some differences in those different components of, of our migration story? Yeah, I think you've highlighted really an important point. Um, the, those immigrants in the 50s and 60s had less capacity to maintain connection with their homelands, assuming that um, the homeland still existed. Because, for example, for Jewish immigrants who came from Poland and whatever, the homeland had been destroyed. So there was not that really option, and that meant that the whole culture was, in effect, um, made much more difficult, if not totally destroyed. It wasn't totally destroyed. But say that you came from Southern Europe or Eastern Europe in the 50s and 60s, what capacity could you maintain? What contacts could you maintain um, with friends, relatives who had been left behind? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very little. I mean, there was mail, airmail. I don't know yeah. if people would know what airmail is today. <laughs> Predates uh, me. <laughs> yeah. But it took a very long time, even as airmail. <laughs> and airmail would be a matter of weeks. And there was just so much you could write. And you'd assume that you came from a culture where that was a... a valid form of communication for people and that wasn't true of all cultures that written form of communication if you came from an oral culture Um, and compare that with today in which you can basically be in Australia but have more contact with your where country that you came from than with Australia Um, that you could be you know on um, messaging all throughout the day Mm-hmm. Could be uh, on FaceTime, FaceTime, <laughs> yeah. whatever. You could yeah. be watching the news not from Australia, so you'd be missing exactly. all this wonderful information about the election. Right. Or and you can even just text in the moment and get a response. Exactly. Yeah. So that that is a total transformation, mm-hmm. and I think we're still having to understand what impact that will help have. Mm-hmm. But if we go back to social cohesion, mm-hmm. I mean, the, for me, the challenges have been, or, or the uh, findings are that concern about um, threats to cohesion by people maintaining their own cultures has been greatly overstated, if not totally fallacious, because it hasn't happened. What has happened is that immigrants have made various accommodations, and they are various, uh, but have been um, amazing contributors to Australian society. Mm. Absolutely. I've heard of you refer to them as pioneers, yeah, um, absolutely. Actually, um, I teach a program at the Immigration Museum yeah. around dif- migration, and we teach about five different people who migrated to Australia in different periods. Um, and one of them is the 1890s, I believe, and his name is Simka Bevsky. He comes from, he was a Russian man <laughs> yeah. who migrated here um, in the face of the persecution of Jewish people yeah. and came here with little to no money, was poor, but, you know, made little things with his hands, went door selling and, and eventually opened up the first Maya store in Bendigo, which then went on to, you know, expand across different parts of um, Victoria and even ended up funding the Sydney Maya Bowl, Music mm-hmm. Bowl. So it's yeah. like, you know, it was really interesting for me to learn and I've, I continue to learn about different migrants who have contributed greatly 
to the economy and the, the society here in Australia. Um, and it's such an interesting area of study. What, what encouraged um, you or what, what led you to um, explore this area? I think probably because I'm an immigrant myself. Mm, interesting, yeah. I came to Australia as an eight-year-old. Um, and in that period, started school without any sort of support, which would be very different today. You know, I couldn't speak a word of English when I started school. But there was no sort of English second language or any sort of that teaching. And then to, I experienced Australia in that period. And I guess it provided me with a lifelong interest in trying to understand immigration, but also try to understand Australian history. Mm. Yeah, such an interesting area. Oh, it is, but you've maintained an interest in the Jewish community uh, throughout your career, haven't you? I know you've been doing quite a considerable amount of study in that space. One of the things I remember you talking about is is the intergenerational components as... as, which is, you know, characteristic in quite a lot of minority communities is effectively that the older generation get concerned about the younger generation losing their culture in some way and becoming too much like the right. sort of some bland mix of <laughs> all sorts of people that just happen to be here. And it is really interesting that um, how important the maintenance of some components of your culture are to individual's identity even when you are migrating to somewhere else it's not something that you necessarily want to just give up absolutely it's it's something that I myself am conscious about as an Australian born Ethiopian woman um, who was raised in a household you know I lived I I was raised in Caulfield um, which I I believe I was like the only um, African family there at the time (laughs) Um, and um, my parents interestingly took the approach of speaking to us in English but then maintaining their Ethiopian language amongst them so I was able to eventually understand the language really well but then struggled to speak and I grew up and I even decided to learn French on my own accord based off an interest in French and I got to a point of speaking French and English and being like hang on this is ridiculous (laughs) I don't even speak my mother tongue fluently And I I felt kind of, not bitter, but a bit disappointed in my parents because I'm like, you know, you had all the years under under the one roof to impress me with both languages, Mm -hmm. essentially. But um, I understood that my parents were really focused on us, you know, integrating into the Australian society and, you know, getting that education and not being fearful of, of mixing with the Australian society and all of those things. And I appreciate it because it's definitely serves, served its purpose, but I, I am reflecting as a woman now, being like, okay, what would I have done differently or what have I missed out on? Um, and luckily it's nothing that I can't redeem, so <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. But as you describe that, I mean, that in a way is the classical, stereotypical um, placing of individuals so that the first generation struggles to... Um, establish a livelihood, establish homes, mm. education for their children. Um, and as I understand you to say, in that process, the children lose yeah. much of that culture yeah, and then seek to reclaim that. It's m- maybe you're one generation wrong in that because it's the third generation that would be um, particularly you know, have been become established and so on, yeah. being particularly concerned about the culture that had been lost and seeking to recover that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, I think I 
I see myself as someone who hasn't completely lost it. I've so you're in between. I'm in between. Yes. Yeah. I've been back home a few times and I've spent some months there. I've, I've met all of my family, yeah. most of my family. Um, so in that, and I know in the, I understand the culture really well and I eat the food. I, I know about the food. So it's in a sense I'm in between and I'm just conscious of the fact that, you know, I'm living in Australia and moving forward, I might end up, you know, marrying someone that's not of Ethiopian background and yeah. it might be harder um, then to maintain it. So I'm thinking about it in a sense for my future. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which I, um, I think is probably characteristic of people who have that wonderful benefit of having multiple cultures mm -hmm. to draw upon and to pass on. It's a really important component of what makes us a very rich country. Andrew, one of the things that we do know is that we've got 162, 164 different nationalities living in Australia. Does that make us different to, uh, say, the United States or to the United Kingdom in regard to not only our approach to how we describe multiculturalism, but also our level of acceptance with multiculturalism? I mean, the, the first thing I would say is that what makes Australia different from a number of other um, diverse societies is the extent of diversity. Mm -hmm. So in, in many societies, there are two or three dominant groups. Um, so say in, in Canada, the Francophone and the English-speaking groups. Um, increasingly in the United States, it, it's the African-Americans, it, it's the um, European, people of European origin, and now the Spanish, Hispanic speakers. So it doesn't seem that that's occurred in Australia. And in a way, the government of the time did recognise this as an issue and particularly strove to bring a diversity of peoples rather than have, say, a very large Italian-Australian population as opposed to... So I think that does characterise Australia, that uh, extent of diversity. Yeah. And... I guess the other thing is has been really the success of the policies and to try to understand, not so much policies, but to understand um, how is it possible that people of such diverse background have been able to coexist in a very large part peaceably and in a high level of prosperity for many groups, not all groups by any chance. But how has that occurred? You know, at one stage I was studying settlement in Springvale. Springvale in Melbourne is a very diverse area, um, characterised by a succession of immigrant groups. At one stage, Southern Italians, and then um, uh, from Indochina and other groups more recently. And I was placed at the campus, Clayton campus of Monash University, which is within a couple of kilometres of this area. So I could observe it. And I was thinking... Isn't it amazing that in the one street, say there are like one block, 30 houses, you could have 15 different cultures. Mm -hmm. And you could actually map that, the extent of diversity that there was. And, and to a large extent, people were able to um, live amicably and together. So lots of tensions have mm -hmm. accompanied this very diverse immigration program. But it seems that most of the fears that were raised have not been realised. Um, you know, at one stage, people were worried about crime rates. Um, but that is an issue with 
groups at various points in their trajectory of settlement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you look at that in the long term, there are, I don't want to um, downplay this, there are long-term problems in Sydney and Melbourne and other areas. <laughs> but in very large part, um, people celebrate the success rather than the failure. Yeah. And I would say that this is where the Scandon Foundation surveys have made a major contribution. Oh, yes. I found it so interesting <laughs> listening to yeah. um, the lecture that I was listening to um, where you mentioned that only Australia has now, um, with sorry, Scanlon Foundation was the first um, foundation to actually um, undergo or te- like take take on this sort of research that yep. maps out this sort of this the attitudes towards migration. I found that so interesting. <laughs> Other countries do not have that record of year on year on surveying, yeah. um, funded by a, a private philanthropic organisation um, without an agenda. Exactly. It's great. It's, it's really, really There's no great. shortage of people out there <laughs> with, with an agenda. Absolutely. And I think it would be fair to say that the uh, Scanlon Foundation um, is on the side of wanting this pr- um, project to succeed, this multicultural project that characterises yes, Australia. Absolutely. But on the other hand, it's not wanting to actually shoot the messenger. It's not wanting to actually predetermine what is going on. Well, I, th- I think one of the things that I've always, I, I believe very strongly about Australia is that we are quite different to all these other uh, countries. And I think it's incredibly important that you have the data and the research that helps to unpick why that might be the case. What are the, th- the particular strengths about Australia that we need to continue to build on? Yep. And if, if bipartisan policies are one of those, I think they're the sorts of things we should be advocating for. Speaking of which, this is a year that's sort of characterised by a federal election. Um, I'm quite interested, Andrew, in your views about how important having a voice in, in society is to... Um, smaller communities as a, as a um, component of social cohesion, if you like. Is, is having a voice, having that ability to participate, even being a part of a society that has mandatory voting, uh, is that something that is um, a, a key component of, uh, of social cohesion? That's a great question. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up this question of the election, which we're now... Uh, in the middle of, let's say, more towards the end of <laughs> the campaign. Because sometimes you don't notice things um, which are going on in the background because they haven't been brought to your attention. And often the things that you don't notice are of very considerable significance. Um, like say that you've got a pain, like you've, done a d- dam- you've been running around and you've done damage to a leg. If, if it's hurting you, if it's hurting you, you know about it. If it's not hurting you, it's in the background and you've forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. Until, you know, three days later you remember, hey, wait a minute, what happened to that pain? Mm-hmm. Now, in this election campaign, immigrant issues and multiculturalism has not figured, has it? No, nope, not at all. Like no one's been campaigning on changing the immigration program. Nope. Interesting, yeah. Like, mm. if, if anything, what people are concerned about is that they saw that immigration stopped for two years and they're actually seeing the negative consequences of it. 
labour shortages in various areas as well. So I think that we shouldn't take that for granted, that no party, even the minor parties that I'm aware of, have chosen to politicise that issue. And that where we are as a society is we're not discussing should we have immigration or shouldn't we have immigration. If anything's being discussed, it's how big a program do we need? Absolutely. That. So I, I think that's a, something we shouldn't take for granted and to recognise. Now, with regard to having a voice, that I, I think is, is fundamental to having a sense of inclusion and having a sense of, of participation. Say for young people, um, I've been reading quite a lot about the disenchantment of young people with the political system. Um, and that can be like a major problem because if people are denied a voice and feel that they're not being listened to and that their issues are not being concerned, in terms of a cohesive society, that's going in the wrong direction. Mm. Where we're particularly seeing that is um, with regard to Indigenous Australians yep. and the call for a voice to Parliament. And that, in a way, is a, a problem in Australian society because the Indigenous population, the First Nations population in Australia, is relatively small. Let's say it's around 3%, give or take. That's very different from, say, New Zealand. And in New Zealand, we're talking 10, 20 plus percentage. We're talking of uh, people in high office over a long period of time, who've come from Indigenous Māori communities or the Pacific Islands and have been given a voice. I don't know, what would you think about, say, from the point of view of young people not having a voice? My opinion on young people <laughs> not having a voice? Yeah. It, I mean, immediately I think it's a, it's, it's a bad thing. It's a completely negative thing, especially seeing it's us as the young people who are going to go on to take on roles in society. We're going to, you know, we have, we have years, we have years ahead of us essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just by nature of us being in this country and functioning in this country, we're going to impact it in some shape or form. And I think it would be a good thing for us to assume the responsibility of being an active participant in the society who has a voice um i have at times felt discouraged um about you know having a voice and but then i've i've had to sort of sit back and realize <coughs> and ask myself okay what am i tuning into in in terms of news because in today's day and age there's a lot of noise in in the media and you have to really be able to actually sift through what you're seeing and kind of decipher what's worth taking on as an opinion. Um, that's just because there's all these alternative media channels. Everyone has an opinion now. Everyone has an, as a platform. And I think that leaves some room for confusion. Um, but at, at the same time, I still feel as though Australia values its young people. I still feel as though Australia values the voice of its young people and in terms of what I see in my community and, you know, what I see on social media, for the most part, we're, we are, as young people, still very interested in having a voice. Um, so, yeah. But would you agree that a pressure point is um, what's happening to climate and the environment? Yes. And in a way, it's much more significant for young people than people my age because 
I'm probably not going to be around when, you know, the temperature hits 50 degrees right. on a regular <laughs> basis, but you may well be. It, and people say, you know, it, it's basically your future and your, mm-hmm. it's what the generations are passing on. And if those issues are not being addressed and uh, there's a sense that the politicians are not listening, that again produces a pressure point mm-hmm. in terms of cohesive societies because what do people do if they're denied a voice and they probably take to the streets? Yeah. And when people take to the streets to voice their concerns, um, that really leaves a room for extremists to you know, influence and to have an impact in society. So, so Andrew, is employment or um, literacy or language or the ability to speak English in, in such an English-oriented um, society, are they other pressure points in regard to social cohesion that can I actually make a, a contribution through employment and can I actually engage with others through language? Are those things that are particularly important in regard to social cohesion? There'll be different views of that. Um, my immediate response is that Australia, certainly at the present time, has got a full labour market. Um, so it, it hasn't been that difficult mm-hmm. uh, for people to get employment. They might actually have two or three jobs and they may be struggling, you know, to sort of put things together. But I don't think we're at the point of, say, the United States, where people working for such low wages uh, that, that they basically lose hope. I don't think our our system is like that and we wouldn't want to sort of get to that point. But we've had this long-term problem in Australia of recognition of overseas qualifications. And and that's just a a loss on every front. It means that you're not using the potential uh, of of people to contribute to society. Like we were just talking to someone today who came from a South American country and she's working as a cleaner. But she's a trained nurse. Mm -hmm. Now, do we need trained nurses at the present time? Like, right, yes. <laughs> like the do. government is out there, you know, offering all sorts of incentives for people from overseas to come to Australia. Are they looking at people in Australia who are actually trained, but they may not be able to get recognition because their English language, for example, may not be up to the standard or, or whatever. So where are we investing and, and are we using our potential? And that, I think, is where language comes in. But we're probably not in that situation that we were in, um, say, in the 1950s, where if you didn't have the language competence, you were was basically a shut, closed door to you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you you go and vote, and or you we actually did a postal vote, so we we got this screed on in ten different languages. Mm-hmm. We have become amazingly much more adept mm-hmm. at coping with not coping, but including people um, who don't have good English language competence. Um, And again, it shows how far we have come as a society because that wasn't there in the 50s or 60s, but is again like taken for granted today that those services will be provided. Absolutely. I I also think that there's – we've we've still got a little bit of room to go in in appreciating multilingualism and people – there's so many people that come from different countries speak – multiple languages, yeah. <laughs> not not e- the least the ones that they might acquire when they get here through education or whatever it might be. But we, we don't necessarily seem to value someone who can speak five different languages as a real asset to the organisation they're, they're joining um, and finding ways to, to maximise that benefit. But 
um, it is a really interesting area around what what are the things that have been contributed to society and what are we actually not taking advantage of just yet. Yep. Yeah, and <clears throat> that area that you just mentioned of recognising um, potential, um, it seems as if it's, you know, in both of our interests as, say, the migrant and Australia as a society to recognise that potential um, so that that person can actually be um, a part, of a, a significant part of society sooner almost. Is, are there things that Australia is doing to actually improve on that area of, of recognising and harnessing the potential of a, of a new migrant? I think it's been an ongoing mm-hmm. um, attempt to improve what we do. Right. But I don't think that people would say that we're there. Okay. That, that yeah. we, we are at that level that, that we uh, need to be. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to do a lot of discussions with immigrants because we've done, as part of this project, focus groups and we've done individual interviews and so on. And, and so often people will say, like they might have come from India and they've got a high level of qualification. Um and they come to Australia, they easily meet the points test um, so that they can actually get the visas because of their skills and training, mm-hmm. but then find that in Australia they can't make that transition. Um, and so they end up doing jobs which are way above their level of qualification. They don't contribute as much as they might to Australian society, and many of them end up leaving. So if, um, the, the concern has been that with the economies picking up, and hopefully they will. Um, countries like um, South Korea, etc., will be competing with Australia for that skilled labour force, mm. and, and also our universities will be losing out as well, both in terms of their um, teaching staff and also their capacity to recruit students. Yeah, well, that was a very interesting example you gave earlier because that described my mother. She <laughs> was actually um, a trained and qualified nurse. Um, after she left Ethiopia, she went to Eritrea, which is a country just above Ethiopia. She became a trained and qualified nurse. She went to Kenya and worked there for a while. And then she migrated to Australia in 91 from Kenya. And she had that exact issue that you described um, of being recognised as an, a nurse, a trained nurse here. Um, so it's it's interesting. Yeah. And Andrew, we've, we've had the chance to talk about a whole variety of different things around social cohesion and, and what what makes it up but I think one of the sort of the foundational pieces that we should cover off is is why should we study social cohesion and and just as an adjunct to that I'd be really interested to know whether or not you have one or two findings that you've come across over since 2007 since you've been doing this um, that jumped out at you sort of surprises that you hadn't necessarily expected so what is it about studying social cohesion that shows us things we might not have seen otherwise. Yeah. So the reason that I've been <laughs> so much interested in this project and I've had um, seen as a great privilege to be involved in it for uh, quite a long time <laughs> um, is that I, I, I believe that it's vital that people understand themselves. Mm. Understand themselves as individuals and understand themselves as a people. Um, And there will be people around who will help you or try to help you to understand yourself um, in a negative way. Yeah? Yes. Mm -hmm. That people will put certain images on you and say you are like this or you are like that or or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
and we can see that like a ready example is just the individual and the way the social media um, in an abusive way puts images on people and causes them great distress and so on. In a similar way, I think it's the same for a national consciousness. If I tell you that, you know, forget all this rubbish about multiculturalism and whatever, in reality the people I know, and I think this represents the Australian people, the Australian people don't like all this immigration. We don't like this. We don't like that. So, and that is a, a, a danger to democracy because what, is hap- what has happened, this is nothing new, People with their understandings will try to naturalise their understandings, which means that they will say, what I think is actually what most other people think in this society. Yeah. Um, so those debates that go on in society, um, we're probably at a sort of a danger point in as much as diverse media that used to characterise Australia has greatly shrunk. So there's a very high level of media concentration in Australia. Now, we talk about what, what makes Australia different or not different. Well, one of the things that makes Australia different in a negative way compared to a number of other countries is the extent of media concentration. Like I've been sort of watching the British media recently and I can access six different major newspapers from the Times of London at one stage to some tabloids on the other, that extent of diversity, and we don't have that diversity. So the point I'm making and the relevance of this is that who's out there making an independent contribution to help people understand themselves in the context in which there's any number of oligarchs, is a term (laughs) that we've used in context of Russia, that actually exist in Australia the way that oligarchs will attempt to influence and give people an understanding of who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get people to believe that Australians don't like multiculturalism, that Australians don't like cultural diversity, that everyone should learn English and do it tomorrow and we shouldn't have translator services paid for by my taxes, that has an impact on society. So that's why I think these surveys have been so important. Almost myth-busting. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. And, you know, when we started asking people, do you think multiculturalism has been good for Australia? And we consistently found that 85% of people said yes. And it was hard to find any social group where you didn't have a majority endorsement of that. That, I think, was a useful piece of research that people could take and think about. They didn't agree with it. They could do their own surveys and find something else, but no one actually has. No, that's been an essential... Uh, finding in actual fact because it it changed people's perspectives about what type of a society we were and how resilient we were. Yes. And often people view, they have an opinion, like you said, based off their immediate environment or their immediate world and the opinions that, you know, people in their immediate environment have. But then when you present them with a research piece, um, which is randomised in the sense of the population sample, then they have no choice but to say, okay, well, I guess this isn't the, you know, the general opinion of a person in Australia. Yep. I have a research piece to refer to that actually says otherwise. So it is very important. <laughs> and in that context, you know, you ask, well, was there any findings, say, in recent yeah. surveys that sort of jumped out at me and I think needed to jump out at all of us? I think it was how resilient Australia was 
in a time of crisis. Mm -hmm. That people didn't turn on each other. In fact, people became more supportive of each other in general. Not to say everyone did. Because when I make that qualification, we draw a distinction between noise and substance. There are small minorities who make a lot of noise. And they attempt to then sway opinion on the basis that what we say is what everyone says, but they're too quiet or whatever, they're not getting their views put out. So a very telling example is the views on lockdowns. So there's a perspective that we want to reclaim our freedom <laughs> and lockdowns deny us of our freedom mm-hmm. um, and people want to reclaim their freedom etc etc so what we found is that not only did a majority of people agree with lockdowns but it was close to nine out of ten mm-hmm. eight and a half nine out of ten agreed with lockdowns and that was after one year and then you say was that ever proven like in substantial way And we look at, for example, Western Australia. In the Western Australian election, and they had the most severe sort of controls up to that point of that election, Uh, the government of the day won basically every seat, Mm -hmm. almost unprecedented. So the surveys, I think, showed us that Australia had a very positive response at a time of crisis. Mm -hmm. Trust in government went up. And why was that? Trust in government went up because people endorsed the policies of government, including the level of infrastructure and support that was given to people who'd lost their jobs. Um, the level of trust in government, and Australians are cynics, so the level of trust typically <laughs> is 32%. And for the first time, we had a majority of respondents saying you can trust the government in Canberra. Trust in fellow Australians went up. People who said, uh, people in my neighbourhood help each other, um, went up, up to about 85% of people agreeing with that. So there were a number of findings with regard to government and trust that all moved in a positive direction. When we looked at the proportion of people with extremely negative views, they shrank. Yeah. And I guess the, the other point I would make, um, because... Often in a time of crisis, people turn against the weakest members of their communities. There was some element of that, like Chinese Australians felt victimised at particular points. So it's not to say they didn't agree. No. But in general, the findings with regard to cultural diversity and multiculturalism, again, all were moved in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. The one issue that I think was cautionary and certainly made me think, was that when we asked people, is racism a significant problem in Australian society? That went from 40% in 2020 to 60% in 2021. So people became more conscious and more aware that racism was a problem in that society. And I would say that was a reflection on seeing, you know, some of the extremists and the airplay that they were getting, mainstream media, on social media and so on. Because it was very unusual to get that level of movement in the survey. It was more like 2, 3, 4% with a lot of issues to do with cultural diversity moving in a positive direction. But that finding 
was a very stark finding and I think a salutary finding for the way that this country's run was the level of concern that people had about extremism. That's really interesting because that finding supports something that I recognise at the time. I actually recognise an increase in consciousness around racism and discrimination between, say, early 2020 to up to now. Yeah. And I've, I've also thought about the reasons for why this might be. And one of them, I also thought, you know, we, we, we quite literally came to a stop at some point in this world due to COVID. And people were very much tuned into the online world more than ever before. And it was interestingly around that time, a, a number of incidents were happening around the world that were just getting really intense coverage on social media. And I just saw this, I just saw people really just taking the time to stop and learn about issues um, and that they didn't necessarily consider before. And it, it is just such the value of, of research and objective, mm. clear research exactly. that's done incredibly well. And, and Andrew, I think we have to absolutely thank you not mm. only for your participation in this podcast, but also for the years of research that you've take, undertaken, not only the Mapping Social Cohesion Reports, which uh, can be found on the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute website, but also all the time, all the work that you've done prior to that and, in actual fact, at the same time in, uh, in looking at Australia's social cohesion. So it's been incredibly valuable. This has been a great conversation. I've just thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been wonderful just to have a very um, sort of ever-evolving conversation around social cohesion to start off the series as well. So absolutely. thank you so much for being <coughs> a part of it. Yeah, this has been an absolute pleasure. And I, I think I take a number of things away from this conversation. But one thing that I'm reminded of is the, the importance and value of research and credible, credible findings. And that's something that I learned in uni. And though I've left uni, <laughs> I, won't, I won't leave that behind. So thank you. I mean, the, the aim of this is not to give a plug to the Scanlon Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I think we have to acknowledge that the Peter Scanlon and the Foundation have so generously funded this research without any qualification. So there was no looking over your shoulder or anything. The money was provided for the best research that we could conduct. Um, and you can't say that that's a contribution that people have made um, in many countries and, and I think that we're very fortunate in Australia to have had that contribution. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by Faisal Farah with sound design and mixing by John Bigelow. Original music is by Official Steno. You can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition.